1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 20 through 24, God's Word declares, Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice, be babes, but in understanding, be mature. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there are coming in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all. He is convicted by all. And thus, the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in, church, in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, for they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. This morning we want to really try to conclude our study in the uh, issue of tongues specifically, uh, the biblical, and it's not a biblical issue, it's really a biblical doctrine of the gifts of the Spirit. We are going to be moving in the weeks to come into some very powerful passages with regard to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our future resurrection. And I've been looking forward to that for some time, uh, but not that I have been overlooking this passage that's before us today. For certainly it is necessary. Uh, it has some very important principles that we're going to be applying to really all our worship, not just our corporate worship as a church body here today, but certainly in our church meetings, they should, these principles should be evident, even if we are at a time when we no longer need tongues because we have something uh, perfect before us, God's Word, that has been complete. And that's really the Greek word there rather than without uh, any other ideas of perfection. But we do have this complete God's Word that is inerrant, infallible, and all of those great theological words that we have uh, attached to it. We um, want to take these principles and see their application 
in this area of specifically of the use of languages within the church. But then I want to bring it into our uh, experience in terms of what we uh, have available to us today in our worship. Before we get into this uh, too much, we want to begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We do thank you for your word before us and for its completeness, its sureness that uh, we have this foundation that you have provided us in our prayers that we might be attentive to it. Uh, Lord, we recognize your word is truth. And whether we adhere to it or not, whether we uh, claim it or not, it stands. It is not relevant based upon our decision to make it so. It is that way because it is yours and it is your declared word. And so we pray that we might be attentive to it, that we might derive from it our practice, our thinking that leads to our practice and our theology that should drive our thinking. And then, Lord, we do today... Continue to pray, as always, that your spirit might have liberty to work in our midst, that you might guard this time from error, for anything that is not pleasing to you. Lord, we need your help in that, for we tend to bring our own biases to your word. And Lord, our prayers that we might be sensitive to its truth and have the humility to understand our need to change our positions to conform to yours. We pray for your help in all of this. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, several weeks ago we looked at the supremacy of love in ministry. That if there's anything that cannot be found lacking in your ministry to Christ within the context of the local church as well as in the world, um, What is supreme is love. Without that, nothing you do, no matter how successful from the world standpoint, um, does God honor, does God view as of any value. So we saw the supremacy of love, and while others seek to lift other aspects to that role, to that level, um, God's Word does not. It makes it very, very clear that genuine spiritual ministry Uh, must be driven by a love that is sacrificial, that seeks others' benefit, not just our own, that edifies and builds up the church. That if any other motive is driving our ministry, that motive is self and is going to puff up rather than edify. And this is not our desire. Following the supremacy of love... Paul last week looked at the the necessity of understanding. So you have a supreme philosophy, a supreme goal, a, a supreme drive. That is that we love God, love one another, and want to minister His Word effectively. And the effectuality engages our intelligence, our intellect. And so Paul has repeatedly said that there is a greater benefit to doing things with your understanding than any kind of experiential or uh, any kind of thing that just raises our feelings and we get 
goosebumps all over. Well, if it's not based upon our understanding of God's Word, uh, that itself is really of little value. It's not sustainable. And so, following the supremacy of love, we have the necessity of understanding, that our understanding is engaged, that if our ministry doesn't, isn't understood, if our words that we speak and the actions that we perform are, are misread or aren't able to be read, um, what have we accomplished, really? And again, with our focus being the ministry to others and their edification, it's not good enough for me to know in my mind what I mean by my mouth that is not sufficient. It must be clarified so that it is brought into the understanding of the hearer so that they can then, with their understanding engaged, respond. Either by accepting or rejecting that message. But how can they do either if they don't get the message? They don't grasp it. So Paul has talked about the efficiency, the necessity and the efficiency of, of our understanding being involved. To the, and so efficient is it that he compares five words of understanding with how many words? Let's see here. Um, a thousand? Then 10,000. Sorry, I was a digit off. Uh, then 10,000 words without it. Uh, you have to think about that. Five words up against 10,000. That's efficient. And so when we engage people's understanding, when we address them in ways that they can grasp, this brings us into effectual ministry. doesn't puff us up because we're not using extraordinary uh, words that, that uh, everyone goes, wow, I had a professor like that. It only really worked on, on freshmen at college. Um, and uh, he used big words. And, and for some reason in my scheduling, I didn't take that freshman level class. As a freshman, I was actually uh, my senior. <laughs> Shouldn't take. And uh, so I wasn't really overwhelmed by his vocabulary anymore. And he used these words. And these kids are writing it down and looking it up and trying to understand it. And they just were lost a lot of times in the lectures. Um, and... Uh, Obviously, as a senior taking a freshman level course, um, I wasn't impressed and I wasn't challenged by the vocabulary. I, I could learn the content. The content was there. And it was really pretty simple content. Um, it was couched in this fanciful language. Um, so it wasn't difficult for me to score well. And I remember one day when he went through the class and was trying to... Uh, teach this principle of, of uh, I can't even think of the principle now. I, I'm trying to find out his, his words that awed everybody. Um, and now it's just failed me. I guess I didn't learn it as well as I thought. I'm going to think about it till I get that word in just a minute. No, I won't. I'll keep going. So he went around the class asking for their the time spent study in comparison to their test scores, and uh, you know the idea is is that this is a five hour course. You should spend five hours for preparation of a test. And and uh, this poor gentleman ahead of me um, spent over twenty four hours of study for one test. 
That's a lot of study time for a general ed freshman level course. Um, and uh, he didn't score very well. Um, and he was right in front of me, and I'm the next person. So you go from a guy that spent these huge number of hours diminishing returns. There we go. It just came to me. He was studying diminishing returns. Doesn't that sound impressive? That's a college vocabulary there. Um, I didn't have to write down, but I didn't. I, I still remember it all these years later, eventually. So here, this poor gentleman up here, and he's studying all these hours, and he got like a 78 or something on the exam, and I'm just sitting there going, oh, I'm next. I know he's going to ask me. And he comes to me and says, how many hours did you study? I said, about 40 minutes. What was your grade? All right, I got a 98. Oh, boy, that was it. The lecture was over. Lecture was over. He was irate. And uh, then he asked me what year I was. I told him I'm a senior. Um, that just set him off even more, that that shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> what was the difference? The difference was understanding. These poor kids coming right out of high school, and here's a college vocabulary that they're unfamiliar with, and they didn't understand it. They didn't understand half of what he said because his vocabulary was so distinct from theirs. It wasn't because the material was difficult. And I fear that too often we are doing the same things with the gospel. Is that we go out there and we're not engaging the understanding of people. And I'm afraid sometimes of my messages too. And I really work hard at that. Of And we are taught in seminary that you need to teach to about 12-year-olds. And I've found in the last 20 years uh, of ministry that that really needs to be more like about nine. If a nine-year-old can't understand it, um, then uh, I probably shouldn't be saying it. And so I try to use a lot of, I do use some words that I know you guys struggle with, but I usually give it a, a synonym or something right afterwards. Why? Why is it so necessary? And are we trying to dumb down the gospel? No, we want to make sure that your understanding is engaged. Do you not walk out there? I think that was a good message, whatever he said. But rather that we have a grasp of it. Because then once we have a grasp of it, now we can engage whether we are going to accept or reject it. Well, that's just with the English language. Imagine if we get into the use of all kinds of other languages, which is what was going on there in Corinth, and we add the confusion of all these languages being spoken all at once. That we have multiple people seeking to minister simultaneously. And I have now, since I've been to Haiti, been in that environment. And I have to tell you, it is troubling to sit in the midst of that when I don't know anything of what is being said. And I'm not going in there as an unbeliever as our text is going to talk about. I'm not going in there as uninformed about God's ways and God's Word. I'm going in there uh, hopefully as a mature pastor sitting in a congregation and I am just overwhelmed by what's going around. And, and to a degree, I kind of felt the way Paul described. Are these people even in their right mind? How can anyone be ministering anything to anyone else in this room? In that context, they, and I understand now talking to other people who have been involved in some other international uh, ministries and other churches, um, that uh, this is a common practice in several places, and it's called simultaneous prayer. 
It's out loud. It's not what you think of where I pray, you guys pray along. I don't know if you are or not or just taking a nap or whatever. But And it's not a thing where we're going to have silent prayer and all of us are going to pray our own praying together, um, but we're going to do it silently between us and the Lord. This is out loud, simultaneous praying. Everyone's praying their own thing in whatever language they want. And the guy up front is praying as well into a microphone and almost over praying. Everyone else is praying. Um, and it's just total mayhem. And it was disconcerting, to say the least. And what's worse is it was against God's Word that we're going to study today. In direct violation to it. So we have some principles of worship that Paul wants us to be engaged in. And so we're supposed to be mature in our understanding. Um, he adds a little parenthesis here, which is uh, makes you smile. It should, in malice, be babies. When it comes to being hateful and cruel and mean and nasty, just be children. Be immature. Be, be those that, that just accept and are willing to let bygones be bygones, so to speak. Um, and you might say, well, does that mean I don't uh, stop anyone from doing evil? No. But in your doing of evil, in your approach to that, that we are of a forgiving spirit. Do you ever notice how forgiving kids are? Uh, that's why I tell parents, try very hard not to get too involved in your children's relationships with their peers, especially girls. Because they will fight like cats and dogs one day and be horrible worst enemies. And then about then the parents start getting involved. Wrong. Bad, 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 bad. Because about two days later, or maybe two hours later, they make up and they are back to being best friends. Meanwhile, the parents are full of bitterness, anger, and resentment towards each other. In that respect, Paul says, I would rather that you be like babes, that you be like little children, um, that you're just willing to forgive and to get these things resolved in your life and not let them drag out and not let bitterness and resentment come in and malice. Hatred is malice. But his focus, see, that's just a parenthetical statement. He just wanted to stick, stick that in there um, that, you know, don't let this... You know, remember, we're, we're driving at love. That is the supreme. And so that means if love is the supreme, then malice shouldn't really be evident. But the statement is about an understanding. We are supposed to be mature in our understanding. We're supposed to be um, developed in that respect. And so we can consider this area of tongue speaking from a mature position. And so it begins in verse 21 with this statement. Uh, Men with other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. And of course, we go back in the Old Testament, we see where this is derived from, and we know exactly who Jesus is talking about, who God is talking about. Who is it that God is trying to reach through the tongues of other nations, through those mouthpieces, um, through other lips? Uh, I'm going to speak to this people, and this people is not referring to the Gentiles, but to His people, to Israel. And yet, after God does that miraculous work, with men of other tongues and other lips, speaking to his people, yet for all that, they are not going to listen to him. 
And he lays down the Old Testament and, and the time of Christ's foundation for this ministry of tongues, and that is as a sign gift. And we're going to see that word used again here, uh, particularly to one group of people, and those group of people are, are Israel. There's a particular thing they are to be looking for is that their young men, young and are speaking in prophecies and in other tongues and that they are going to be approached with the gospel from those who are going to be able to speak in their language even though they don't know their language. And this was a sign they were to look for. That when they saw this, they should pay attention, they should listen, and they should take heed. But instead, they're going to still reject it as a nation. And we have as a national entity, Israel still in that state of rejecting her Messiah, even though many, many individual Israelites did respond. And we go to Acts chapter 2 and we see this implemented, that this was done among Israel, that here we have Israel gathered from all over the nations, from all the Roman Empire who have come there. There they are at Pentecost and they are hearing God's Word in their own languages. We recognize what you're saying. It's from where I come from. Whether it was dialects of Hebrew, not likely. Um, they would have all known Hebrew to some degree, by and large. Um, but they says, no, I'm from this region. I'm from that region. And uh, he's speaking in my language. That person over there is speaking in my language. This person over here is speaking in my language. And they gravitate to these people speaking their languages and they recognize it and they go, how can this be? We don't... They could interpret it for themselves because they're speaking in, in that language. And so this guy over here is speaking in Sicilian about Christ. I'm from Sicily. Or from Asia Minor, wherever, whatever region represented from Africa to Asia to Europe, they're all there in Jerusalem that time. And they hear God's Word, the Gospel, in their own language. And this was to be a sign to all of Israel. This is that message that you must hear. And yet, as a people, they do not. And so verse 22 introduces us to something that we're going to have to take a little bit of time on because it seems to be contradicted um, a lot of times in our in just a cursory reading in verses 23 and 24. So let's read verse 22 again. It says, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for believers, but for those who believe. And so we look at this, we say, okay, well, here's the criteria. So when I go out to the world, I should use as a sign gift of the Holy Spirit the capacity to communicate to them the gospel, not in gibberish, but rather in their own language that I can go to them and without any prior study, I can communicate to them in such a manner that they recognize that this is the gospel and they can engage their understanding and know what it means. But prophesying that proclamation, that heavy teaching, um, is not really for them. They're not going to really get it. Remember, we've been talking about that prior uh, in prior passages, that really the the meat of God's truth, uh, they're just not going to get. If they haven't accepted the gospel, they're not going to understand the rest. Because without the Holy Spirit, you can't grasp spiritual truth. You just can't do it. And so we can sit there and, and try to engage them in all these other things, but fundamentally, if they're not willing to accept the gospel, our response is to just 
Well, there's nothing more I can tell you because there's nothing more you can possibly conceive without the help of the Holy Spirit within you. And so we have this laid out that we look at prophesying, uh, that proclamation, that teaching ministry of the church uh, that's really for the church. Whereas the capacity to speak in other languages was assigned to the unbelievers, specifically of Israel. Come to verse 23 and 24, and it sounds like it's kind of upside down. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Now, wait a minute. Didn't he just say that speaking in tongues was for unbelievers? And now he's saying that if an unbeliever comes in and hears you guys all doing it, he's going to think you're crazy. <laughs> Correct. That is consistent. Why? Because when a bunch of Christians are together, is there any reason to speak in tongues? Is there any reason to disengage our understanding and to just get into this, this high uh, spiritual state and start yammering away in some other language? No, there's no cause for it. We already know the gospel. And so when a group of believers gets together... There's no reason to have that. We have already received the gospel message. We are now into a training period and it's no longer about how I feel, but what I know. And far too much of the exercise of spiritual gifts is, is focused around your feelings. Um, in a lot of the modern uh, movements, that are out there, charismatic movements. And the Bible specifically declares that, you know what, this is not to be. And when I talk to people who, that's their first contact with Christianity. That's their first contact. They go into the setting and there's people just all going at it at one time. There's people rolling around and, and jumping up and down and, and, and speaking gibberish over there and, and doing weird things over there. They come away. What is their conclusion? Was Paul right or wrong? These people are nuts. <laughs> well, that's the correct conclusion for them to come to. Because listen, if you have already believed, we don't need any of that. What we need is instruction. We need to be grounded. We need to get our roots deep in the soil of God's Word. And to do that, you must have your understanding engaged. It must be with your mind, that we grasp that truth. And then with our hearts, that is our will, we accept it and we bring it into our life. We don't need the miraculous because we've already accepted the miraculous, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't need anything else now. And if we are constantly needing our faith confirmed by this engagement with this quote-unquote uh, miracle gifts, then I would have to say that you are immature in your understanding of your faith. If you have it at all. I don't need that. Because now, I have the Holy Spirit within me, God's truth before me, and I can grasp it. That's what we need to do when we're gathered as a people. And so when an unbeliever walks into a setting like this where a bunch of Christians are gathered, um, they should hear us engaging them, each other, 
Not them necessarily. They're going to overhear us. That's okay. They'll, they'll get it. They can still understand my words, but they will see the godliness and the, and the uh, commitment that we have to truth. And it will affect them. And this he brings out in the next verse. If all prophesy, an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, he's convinced by all, he's convicted by all. And if there's good teaching going on in the church, um, and he comes in and he hears good teaching, good teaching of God's truth will always involve some aspects of the gospel. And that's why almost every sermon you could walk out and hopefully at the end of every message you're going to get at least a, a very basic understanding that Jesus Christ died for your sin and they rose again and, and the, the power of the resurrection to forgive sin and to cleanse us that he takes to my place. Hopefully that fundamental message is, is, is interwoven into every time we study God's word. So when they come into that setting, they hear you and they watch you teaching each other and being taught God's Word as truth. They will pick up the Gospel in the midst of that. Recognize, these people have something I don't have. And it says that he'll be convinced and convicted by it. Isn't that wonderful? Why is that so important? It's important because... We no longer need this sign gift even to reach the lost. It was designed for them. But again, Paul made it very clear in the last chapter when that which is complete is completed and that which is in part will be done away with. It will vanish. And if tongues were the only way to convince people to believe in the gospel and it vanished away, we would be in trouble, wouldn't we? But Paul says, listen, even in your midst, when they come and you're teaching each other, and if it's with an understanding, they will grasp the gospel in the midst of that. They'll be convicted. They'll be convinced. They're not going to just walk in and say, these people are Looney Tunes and just turn it off. Because there's no real understanding going on anyway. Especially if it's just total confusion and mayhem. How can they understand anything? You know, someone's got to take them aside and explain it to them? Well, that sounds like teaching to me. Why don't we do that to begin with? Because Christians are about puffing themselves up instead of edifying. And we want to have this experience. And the experience is more valuable to us than strengthening brethren or reaching the lost. Because I want to feel saved. Because I want to feel the Spirit. Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies, builds up others. So we have this first rule. And that first rule is that when we gather as a church, tongues... have a minimal role, a minimal value. And of course, from from 1 Corinthians 13, we find that they have a diminishing or vanishing cause. 
Verse 25 says, The secrets of one's heart is revealed. And that's not by tongues. That's by teaching. For God's Word, when it is taught, penetrates the heart of men and gives them an opportunity with their understanding to do as this verse describes, fall down on his face, worship God, and report that God is truly among you. You're not behaving like a bunch of wild, crazy people. You're engaging your minds and you have a rational faith in a God that is understandable. It is not just an emotional crutch that you are using through life, but it is a philosophy that is built upon absolute truth that does not waver. The world thirsts for such things. And its result is genuine worship. So what are the rules that we need to have if indeed the Pentecostal movement is correct that we should all be seeking out and speaking in tongues? Well, he's going to give us a rapid fire, and I want to go through them very quickly, a rapid fire set of rules. Here's what you're supposed to be doing. First of all, if you come together... um, it should only be two or three at the most that should be engaging in that. There should be an interpreter. And without an interpreter, I want you to notice how many times throughout the rest of this chapter the word keep silent keeps coming up. Keep silent. Keep silent. All right? And, and pick it up. Pick up on this. How many times it says to be quiet. You would think by looking at other uh, approaches to this kind of worship that none of these said that. It says, hey, make a noise. It doesn't say that. Over and over again, from here on out, you're going to find these words, keep silent. Keep silent. So, if two or three have already engaged that ministry, I'm to keep silent. If there's not an interpreter, I'm to keep silent. If someone else stands up and God's revealed something to him and let there be no doubt that we're talking about revelatory gifts here. Which is why we do not need them, for we have a completed revelation. God's Word. If we believe in revelatory gifts still, then we need to add whatever is spoken to our Bibles. Put an appendix on here and start writing down everything somebody stands up and says in church. Because it has equal authority. And so if someone else gets a revelation from God and stands up, what are you supposed to do? Sit down and be quiet. You don't both talk at once. Women, you have no authority to exercise this within the church. Be quiet. So we have all through this, this statement over and over and over again. Be quiet. Be quiet. Be silent. Be silent. Keep silence. You don't have an interpreter? Then shut up. Sit down. Wow. So everyone wants to jump to one of the last verses in this chapter that says, um, do not forbid to speak with tongues, which I don't have any problem with. Uh, If you want to speak in another language and we have someone here that needs your ministry, um, go for it. As long as you fulfill all the rest that came before that verse. All. 
the rest. Let's not pick and choose what verses we're going to heed in God's Word. So we go through here and we find, well, first of all, the principle of edification is still there. Second of all, we have a principle of orderliness. It should be done decently and in order. And thirdly, we have this principle laid out for us um, that uh, there should be uh, no confusion. There should be no. There should just be peace. That the concluding uh, aspect of ministry that that we need to evaluate it by is: Is my understanding engaged? Does it bring peace rather than turmoil or confusion? And so we have these principles. We do not have the liberty to bring something new to the table. And that's really the essence of what he's going to boil this down to. You know, you Corinthians think you have the right to do this and, and you believe you're spiritual because of this and this, and yet you break every principle of its use. How can that be spiritual? Our objective has not changed. Edification. We do it as one by one in an orderly fashion. Why? Verse 31. That all may learn and all may be encouraged. If it's just about your encouragement, then sit down and be quiet. Do it at home. Do it on your own time. If it's all about how you feel about your relationship with God, do it at home. When it says, I want to edify, I want to build up, I want to minister to others. Now we begin down the right road and we follow these principles. It says there's going to be orderliness. There's going to be ministry, edification. There must be learning involved. And it should be in conformity with what's going on in the larger church. We do not look for novelty. And by the way, that is the... the that's the appeal of the charismatic movement. And, and that appeal is global right now. And we probably talk a little bit about that tonight um, in the service on signs of sin in the church. But that appeal is global. Um, I had the same thing said to me in India and in Haiti and in Peru and in Cuba. Everyone likes the excitement of this novelty, of all this experientialism. No one is really being grounded in any truth. They're just going there for the great experience. But the experience is really emptiness. It's air. It's just a big bubble. It's a puffed upness. Once tested, it falls flat. There's no righteousness at the end of that because there's no righteousness at the beginning of it or during it. We disregard God's Word in the course of it and then we wonder why the saints walk out there no different than when they came in. 
Because they weren't saints to begin with. Because they weren't doing it in a saintly fashion. Corinth thought that they had the right as spiritual people to introduce these kinds of things in novel ways and to, and to exercise them however they pleased. And Paul says, you don't have that right. God will set the parameters of His ministry. And they need to reflect something about God. They need to reflect His character. And is His character full of confusion? Is His character full of division? Is His character all about being puffed up and about self? No. These are counter to God's character. And so we can come to this movement that we see today. And it's fascinating to me because um, the novelty just has to keep building. You ever notice that? It started off with just speaking in tongues, but they, they couldn't, that wasn't novel. I mean, after a while, it's novel at first, but after a while, it just stopped being novel. So then we had to add some other experience. Then that stopped being novel, so then we had to add another experience. And, and the more they added, the more novel they became, the farther away from God's Word they get. And we have ridiculous things like the laughing revival. Why? Why was it appealing? Because it was novel. If there's anything that we like in this generation, it's novelty, isn't it? I just want something new, exciting, interesting. We can't eat the same food every day. I don't want to watch that movie. I've already seen it three times. Ten times, twelve times. I need something novel. And the world keeps pumping it down the pipe, doesn't it? Because we have insatiable appetite for the novel. But when it comes to truth, there is no room for novelty. For this word is truth. There's no novelty in it. It is power of God, period. And so we cling to it. We don't set our parameters based upon how we feel about it. It has to be truth. And how am I going to discern truth? I'm going to discern it with my understanding, not with my experience. And so we come down and now we have to deal with some things that we don't like at all. How can that be there? Why? Because our thinking has become more of the world and less of God's. We've already dealt with this in 1 Corinthians already um, in the area of head covering. And we come to it again here in this passage. And every woman reads this and bristles at it. I should say every American woman, Western woman, bristles at this when God declares in verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. Paul's building this upon not his own opinion, but upon historical law of God and upon the principles of church practice and upon the whole idea of what ministry is is about. And again, we find this totally disregarded in the modern movement. That now, um, not only do we have uh, it permissible for women to jump up and engage in this, but we have them in the pulpit orchestrating the whole thing. The Bible calls it shameful. And the problem in our society today 
is that our society has tried to take away shame by calling good evil and evil good. And that somehow we should be ashamed for doing good, for doing what pleases God. And pastors will stand up and apologize for preaching this, and I refuse to do that. Either it's God's Word and holds, or throw the book away and just invent your own religion. It's worked for other people so far. And God's Word declares this. We look at that and we don't like it because of our culture. Our culture says, no, this, 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 this. Um, and we have an answer to a bunch of uh, negative male roles, a bunch of negative female roles. And it didn't make anything different. That's not the answer. The answer to male chauvinist pigs is not female chauvinist hogs. But rather that we come to God's Word and conform ourselves to its truth. When you come to verse 36, in the context of this statement, it is, again, you have no right to novelty. You cannot just throw out God's Word and say, I don't like it, it doesn't fit my culture, and therefore... We're just going to do it our way. This is what got Israel into a heap of trouble back in the day. Read Jeremiah 17, 16, 18, 23. Read through that section of Scripture and find out what Israel did so wrong that God hated so much. I've been writing out it in my Facebook. Some of you have been following that blog or that thread. Whatever. What do they call it on Facebook? That post. There we go. Um, know where I'm going. God says the worst sin you commit is when you do what you want instead of what I want. That's the worst sin that we commit. When we come to God's Word like this and it makes this declaration, we go, uh, that's not going to fly in our culture. So we better either not preach it or call it cultural. And now we're just going to extract another piece of God's Word and say we're not going to use that. In the exercise of spiritual gifts, we are not going to diminish the role of women, but rather we are going to define it according to God's Word and elevate what God's Word says is your responsibility. You don't have to become a man to be relevant in church or in your family or in society. That is a lie that we have been fed now for a generation. You do not have to be like a man to be valued in society. Ladies, we derive our valuation from God's Word and God looks at it and He's going to exalt that role as its own valuable element within the church, within the family, within the fabric of society. Your role is valuable the way God designed it. Usurping another's role is not going to make you feel more complete. It's going to make you miserable. 
is not going to make you more relevant. In God's eyes, it's going to make you less. It's not going to make you fulfilled. It's going to make you empty. And so while the Corinthians claimed a some spiritual weird right to novelty and introducing ideas, Paul sets them straight. And he concludes this portion of Scripture in verse 37 of chapter 14 here. If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, <laughs> let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. We are not dealing with opinion, are we? When we get to that word commandment, opinions are gone. Listen, if you really want to know an evaluation of spiritual, those who are mature, those who are spiritual in the, Lord, in the church, those that are true teachers and communicators of God's truth, then here's what they should be acknowledging is that what Paul is writing here is truth. And what I fear is going on in most pulpits today that either don't open this portion of Scripture or basically water it down to mean nothing is that we're not going to acknowledge it as true. This is not a commandment of the Lord. This is a suggestion. None of these are suggestions. They are all His commandments to us. And so when we do church, we do it not our way and not our society's way. We don't go to society and say, please define how we can reach you. We go to God's Word and says, what is it that glorifies you when we gather together as your people? And if you're, un, you, it's going to be hard for you now to walk away and say, well, I'm ignorant of this um, after this message. But uh, if you don't want to recognize it, if you don't want to acknowledge it, then so be it. Go somewhere else. Because in this ministry, while I'm still in this pulpit, God's word is the authority. Not my opinion, not your opinion, and not certainly society's view. Oh, that we would put on those heavy, heavy filters in our thinking as we look upon the influences of our society in our politics, in our entertainment, in our concepts of work and family. The fact is, most of us are willfully want to be ignorant or simply does not recognize God's Word to say what it really says. So he summarizes where we have, where we had begun several weeks ago. It's okay to desire ministry. I want you to. God wants you to. Desire, if you're here as a believer, to minister one to another. But do it His way. And do it not to puff yourself up, but to edify the church. You think you know, you don't know anything. If you have not love, you are simply puffed up with knowledge that isn't genuine because we really understand this portion of Scripture. Going back several chapters now, our conclusion is one of humility to say, Lord, use me how you would use me. According to your 
instructions. So yes, desire earnestly. First of all, to prophesy because that by that means we are able to give instruction, teaching in, with understanding. But don't forbid other areas of ministry, including even speaking of tongues in that time. Recognize its role, that there are some that are going to diminish. We now have a complete scripture. And finally, in verse 40, let's not lose track of God's character in all this. When people come into this room while we are doing ministry, what do they conclude about God's character? Is He a God of order or chaos? Is He a God of understanding or confusion? Is He a God of hot air or firm foundations? And that's why our worship matters. That even an unbeliever should be able to walk in and see an orderly service focused on God's truth that's being led by the Spirit of God and conclude God is among them. I need to know more what these people are believing and teaching because it's reaping a harvest in their life of peace and of love and of righteousness. And that's what I want to taste. That's what I want in my life. And then the gospel can penetrate there. But if all they come in and see something that they can't grasp or understand, they scratch their head over it, they walk away saying, they're, they're crazy. They're nutsos. No wonder they call those kinds of names. Because it's not biblical, it's not godly. So we are not missing anything. And I'm afraid that that is many times the attitude. Somehow we're missing something. That God is withholding something good from us. No. That's a lie that Satan introduced and very effectively in the Garden of Eden. He's still using it today. Reject it. God has graced us with His Word. Let's be attentive to it. Minister according to it. And see His hand bless it. Let's pray.